I'm going to ask you, Pat, if you'll put the words of that last song, the song we just finished singing, The Garden of My Heart. I wonder what the garden of my heart looks like. I wonder what, what the garden of our heart actually looks like. You know, we, sing these, we sing these songs all the time, and sometimes I wonder if the uh, real meaning of them, the import of them, actually it dawns on us as we sing them. I'm not saying it doesn't, I just wonder if it does. It says, in the cool of the day he walks with me. In the rose-bordered way he talks with me. So that, that presumes a fellowship, doesn't it? It presumes a, an intimacy, a communication, a fellowship. It also com, com, presumes a condition of the heart that is conducive to that kind of fellowship. It also presumes, I believe, a, a deep desire, a preference, a preference in the human spirit for the uh, things of the Lord. It's a preference for His Word, because apart from the preference for His Word, He is not, there will not be that communion and that fellowship. One thing we find about the Lord, He does not come to a place that He's not welcomed. Do you? Do you? I don't think so. Now, you might find yourself in places from time to time that you don't feel especially welcomed in. You may find yourself there as a necessity. But for the most part, when it's an opportunity for communion and fellowship and dialogue and talking and listening, that um, requires that requires a mutual desire to be there, a willingness to be there. So we go to those places where we are welcomed and the Lord comes into the garden of our heart as he is welcomed there. That's the whole idea of, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and fellowship with him and he will fellowship with me. I'm going to share a little bit with you this morning because I'm just going to share because I haven't been given anything. Now you say, why tell us that? Well, I'll just tell you that for the sake of honesty, that's all. Because I believe in honesty. And uh, there's something about honesty that communicates, it uh, makes it it's self-evident. Honesty is self-evident. And uh, so when uh, those uh, times happen where we're not given anything, the reasons for that. It's reasons for that. There's not it's, That doesn't happen just because a person is not looking for it. it, it there are reasons for that. And sometimes we uh, are not permitted to know the reasons for it. It also doesn't mean that we don't proceed. Uh, if, if, um, if you know what your purpose and calling is in life, then you go to that purpose and that calling. You persevere in that. You're dedicated and you're committed to the calling that you have on your life. It's not about it's not about feelings. It's not about emotions. It's not about those kinds of things. It's about duty in the in the things of the Lord. It's about being there on time. 
It's about being in the place that, that we're called to be in without regard. Now, there's reasons why sometimes there's this tremendous effusion of feeling and there's reasons why there's not. So all those things have reasons behind them. And sometimes we don't know what those reasons are. Now I could say to you this morning, I could say to you that it is my persuasion that things are not as they ought to be. Now that would be honest too. That would be very honest if I were to say that to you. And I think I just have. Now what does that mean? I don't know what it means. I just know certain things. Now, um, does it mean then that we look at and, and, and we focus on the fact that things are not as they ought to be? No, because that's not, a, that's not a way of correction. But I think from time to time, it's uh, very good for us to realize that, to realize that. So I ask these questions all the time, and uh, a lot of the answers that were not, uh, it's not helpful to go into a lot of detail. But what it is helpful to do is to go to the tried and true and tested things that have worked for 2,000 plus years, have always worked. And where we go to is we go to the Word of God. The Word of God, always tried, always true, always tested. And that's what I propose to do this morning. But I want to say this before I do that. I want to say that uh, there's two problems that we have as human beings. One is not having any word, not having any sound, not having and hearing any message. That's a real problem. Imagine someone living in a remote place where they don't have access to anything. The other problem we have is that living in an environment where there's too much sound, too much message, and that's a state of confusion. And we're living in the information age. And information age is accelerating and picking up speed about as fast as it can possibly go. Can it go any faster? Yes. Will it go faster? Yes. But as it continues to pick up and accelerate, then what happens is that message and information and ideas and thoughts and so on, just begin, we're peppered with them. We're just inundated with it. And people, for the most part, don't know how to sift through all that stuff. So what happens then is people then tend to take things according to the personal preference within. Now that brings us back to the garden of the heart. Because what we reach out for and receive and make our own is a great deal to do with the desire we have. What restaurant do you like to eat at? Do you have any places you like to eat at? Why do you want to choose, why do you choose to eat at those places and not other places? There's a restaurant on the sea line that I prefer. A little place on the sea line that I really prefer. And I just happen to be driving down the sea line around five o'clock in the afternoon. And I turn in there and usually the timing is just right. I know a couple of other people that know the timing is just right too. <laughs> That's good. You go where you like the food, right? You go where you like the food. Oh, what determines why you like that food and not some other food? 
Spiritual things are a lot like that. Spiritual things are a lot like that. What determines uh, what people like when it comes to Christian ministry or spiritual things? What determines it? It's the garden of the heart again. It is. It's the garden of the heart. Because it's not as if there aren't any choices, because the choices are numerous as you can possibly imagine. That presents a problem for many people. And the problem is then that there are choices that are made based on a lot of factors. And many of those factors can be just a human desire to have what we particularly want and what we prefer as a human being. Let's put the words back up, Pat. They kind of left here. They faded away. So it says, In the cool of the day he walks with me. In the rose-bordered way he talks with me. In love's holy union and sacred communion in the garden of my heart. I love these words. I'll just read them. There's a sacred and hallowed retreat. You know how people just love to go to retreats and uh, spring retreat or fall retreat and this retreat and retreats. But there's a sacred and hallowed retreat where my soul finds a fellowship sweet. This is my idea of a retreat. Where the Lord of my life I may meet in the garden of my heart. And the person will never be the same. This is life-changing. This is the provision of the cross of Christ Jesus and his life, death, resurrection is to provide this. That's next thing. There is not can disturb or molest. There my spirit finds comfort and rest. And my soul is no longer distressed in the garden of my heart. Shut away from earth's strife and its din. Oh, isn't it a mess? Isn't it the strife and the din? You know what din is. Just that noise. And protected from soul-staining sin. For my Savior is dwelling within in the garden of my heart. There the dove of sweet peace always sings. Isn't this lovely? These words are so wonderfully written. And my faith ever trustingly clings. And the chime of sweet happiness rings in the garden of my heart. That's good, Pat. Thank you very much. I just love the words and I wanted to read them. I want to read a passage with you this morning from Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 1. And I can't read from Third Peter because there isn't one, right? This is it. <laughs> Greer thought she had Third Peter in her, but no, she didn't. <laughs> Second Peter, this is it, this is it. And so let me just read a few verses. It says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which, having, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, 
that through these or by means of these promises you may be partakers of the divine nature. Now these words are just momentous. Absolutely phenomenal and fantastic. And let me say that the one who is becoming and who has been made a partaker of the divine nature is a, per is a person whose, whose desire is to do thy will. His desire is to do the will of God. Because the nature is Christ-like. And that's what it means to be like Jesus. And to like the things that he likes. And to enjoy the kind of fellowship that he enjoys. And the truths that he, in, that, that, that he loves. To love those same truths. And these come to us, it says, by means of these exceedingly great and precious promises. These promises are made our own by faith. It says, through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. This is a wonderful progression of spiritual graces. And these are spiritual things. The fellowship of the Christian church is first and foremost a fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. Secondly, then, it's a fellowship with one another. But it's only a fellowship with one another because we mutually have a fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. The idea that the Christian church is fundamentally a place of fellowship that we have with each other primarily is not a New Testament revelation. That's not it. We all love fellowship. We all love fellowship. But the fellowship we have with one another as Christians, Christian fellowship, is because we have a fellowship with God through Christ Jesus. We have that mutual fellowship. Then we have fellowship with one another. That's what Christianity is. That's what the Christian church is. And that's what we, when our heart, garden of our heart is in right condition, that's what we intuitively crave and desire. And we find ourselves in those places. See, we find ourselves, we'll always find our ourselves in places where we belong. Do you know that's true? They used to say, the old timers used to say, because of observation, they said birds of a feather will flock together. Because they observed that to be true. And we'll always find ourselves in places where we belong. Don't fret those things. If you ever feel like tempted to fret those things, why this, why that, why the other, don't fret them. Because people will always find themselves in places where they belong. What determines where we belong is the garden of our heart. He didn't know we were going to be selected that we we're going to spend so much time on the garden of our heart, Ruth. But it's appropriate, isn't it? The garden of our heart. But there's this wonderful progression of spiritual virtue and graces. And it says, for this reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. See, it's not just faith, it's add to your faith virtue. What's virtue is, the again, the right state of heart. 
and to virtue you add knowledge. And this is not information. This knowledge is not just information. It's not just information. The knowledge is the knowledge of God and the knowledge of the things of God and the promises of God by which when we lay hold of them we become a partaker of the divine nature. And a person who is a partaker of the divine nature is a, per- is a person who naturally does those things that are pleasing to God and are of God. Naturally. This is what it means to become holy or Christ-like. Sanctified life. Then it says to knowledge you add self-control and to self-control you add perseverance. And we, need, we are in need of perseverance. I think that's what I'm trying to say. And to perseverance you add godliness. And to godliness we add brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness we add love. And then Peter writes, for if these things are yours and abound, abound, I like that, if these things are yours and they abound, if you go someplace where something abounds, it reminds me, the thought that comes to my memory is mom going down to the, what was it called, Duns Valley? Flats where they had blueberries years ago. And she went down there to pick blueberries. Was that the place where the bear was picking on the other side while she was picking on one side? <laughs> uh, I'm kind of jesting, but not too much because it was pretty close. And and but they were just clusters. Where they they were just clusters, and you just basically just brought, fill your pail in no time. Well, that's what you call abounding. Abounding. It says, if these things are yours and abound, plentiful, numerous, overflowing. Beautiful word. See, these are not stingy things. God is not stingy and he doesn't pour out his grace in a stingy way. He pours it out liberally, but it has to come a certain way. It comes a certain way and it comes to the heart that craves it. The garden of the heart craves it. And apart from that, it doesn't come. It doesn't come. And people will be where they are intended to be. That's what we are now. I don't mean physically, just physically. We are where we are intended to be. And our fellowship with God is what, according to what is is intended to be, according to the craving of the heart after God, the longing after Him, like the deer that pants after the water brook. Can you see it? Can you see that deer? Just the longing for the water. I mean the need of the water is paramount. And when we come to that place with the things of God, we will be filled and we will receive according to his promises. No question. And we will receive in ways that abound and are liberal. Absolutely they will be. Then he said, For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is the kind of knowledge here that we need. This is the kind of knowledge that we need. This is not the knowledge that just comes from the information. This is knowledge that comes by revelation of the Spirit of God. This is where the Word of God is made alive to us and made manna, if you like, which we can eat and be transformed by. 
This is not information. This is not information. This is not competing ideologies. This is revelation of truth. And he said, if these things, these graces, spiritual virtues abound, then you're going to be, you're not going to be unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things, he said, Peter said, is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election certain or sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. And this is eternal security. This is the idea of eternal security right here. Is there such a thing as eternal security? Yes. Was it predicated on continuing to receive according to the gracious and the bountiful outpouring of the Spirit of God? And then he said, for so, or in this way, an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly, here's the word again, into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And for this reason, Peter changes his tone just a little bit here now, because he knows he's coming to the concluding part of his ministry. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. Though you know and are established in the present truth, yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent. You like that? As long as I am in this tent. What tent was that? His body. He referred to his body as a tent. Right? That's the way it is. He said, as long as I am, I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you. I think the King James says, I heard my mother say it so many times, to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. She would say that so often. Now you see the tent that she formerly occupied has been left temporarily until it will be renovated at the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And renovated is not the appropriate word because it will be changed beyond renovation. But this is the way it is. And Peter was talking about that with regards to himself. And he said, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent. What does that mean? He said, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. He means that he knows that his departure is near. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. It's imperative that you are reminded of these things, he's saying. Now, listen to what he says now. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, I want to say something. I'm finding and observing in all this din and noise of information that people, for the most part, tragically, are becoming... What's the kindest word I can use? Are becoming deficient, extremely deficient, in the knowledge of the credibility of uh, 
the revelation of Scripture. And I'm finding that some of the most intelligent leaders, accomplished people in the world, are completely void, empty, of any kind of revelation and understanding of the gospel. Like it, it is just so tragic that I, I can't find the words to express it adequately. And yet you have this, these wonderful writings left to us. And you have Peter now in this last epistle that he would write. And with such an urgency saying, you know, we're not, listen, we're, it's not cunningly devised fables that we have communicated to you. This is real, he said. This is true. He said, we didn't follow these cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now this would be the mountain of transfiguration when Jesus took Peter, James, and John and he took the three with, with him and he went up on the mountain. Was it Mount Tabor? We're not sure. Was it Mount Hermon? Not exactly certain. One of the two is most likely. But he took them up on the mountain and it says that he was changed. His appearance was changed before them. And it says that his clothing took on a shine and his face shone like the sun. And his clothing took on a glow and an incredible brilliant light. This is Jesus. And then there was a cloud, but not a cloud like a cloud in the sky, but a, a light that surrounded is the best word, not overshadowed, but surrounded. And this light surrounded them. And then they heard a voice out of that, out of that light, that cloud of light, if you like. And the voice said, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And they were so fearful. And so he said, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, let me say something. Do you know that what I've just read to you is a proof of the resurrection of Jesus? What I've just read to you is a proof of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, let's go back to Matthew chapter 17 and uh, describe why I say that this, having read from 2 Peter chapter 1, is a proof of the resurrection. This is what happened in Matthew 17. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. And his clothes became as white as the light, as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah. What? Moses and Elijah. Moses, many hundreds of years previously. Elijah, about 900 years previously. 
but they see Moses and Elijah on this mountain talking with Jesus. And then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now it is this event that Peter is writing and referring to later on in his second epistle, second letter. It's this event. And Peter is saying we didn't write things and and share things that are cunningly devised fables. We told you exactly what we saw and experienced. He said, and when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and, and said, arise and do not be afraid. Now I find as I read this, I find this is interesting to me is that a lot of times we are we fear things that Jesus continually says we should not fear. And could it be, I'll just pose the question, could it be that there's one reason why sometimes we don't see more things than we do is because our reaction to it would be one of fear. Incapacitated by fear. As they were. They were incapacitated by fear. And yet at the same time, and I could easily say, well, who wouldn't be and all that? Jesus said, don't be afraid. And the reason he would say, don't be afraid, is because this you should not be afraid of. Ask yourself the question. Do you think it possible that we don't see many things that's withheld from us from time to time because we would be incapacitated by fear if it were to be shown to us and that's not the purpose for it being shown that we would be incapacitated by fear. Anyway, Jesus said, don't be afraid. He said, rise, get up. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now here we come and I'm just going to read this and then I think I'm going to I'm going to close. It says, Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Do you think they followed his command? Yeah, absolutely they did. Uh, based on the experience they just had. What a marvelous experience. Oh my. As they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Don't say a word. Don't say anything to anyone. Don't say anything to the other disciples. Don't say anything to anyone until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And they didn't even uh, completely understand the idea of being risen from the dead yet. They were still... They still weren't expecting his death, crucifixion. But he said, don't breathe the word of this to anyone until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Now, Peter in Second Peter, as he writes this letter, is not only telling his fellow disciples, he's telling everyone, he's telling us. That's why we're talking about it today. So what that tells you is, <laughs> he began to talk about it very vocally and publicly after Jesus was raised from the dead.
That's why I say. In in Second Peter, it's a testimony to the truth of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you know, our great uh, prayer for one another, as we come to a conclusion, our desire for, for one another, and our desire extends way beyond this room, is for the fullness of the provisions of Calvary and the cross of Christ, that we would experience the fullness. Am I, are we experiencing the fullness of the provisions? Oh, that we might experience the fullness of these great, exceeding, and precious promises. And that we might be uh, so influenced then, so influenced by His Spirit and His Word, that we might be able to speak a word that is seasonal, appropriate to the person with whom we are talking. You know, I could, I could say how things are not the way they should be. That isn't going to make them the way they should be. So you won't hear me say a whole lot about it other than to recognize it as a fact. How would things then become more as they ought to be? Well, there has to be then a tremendous move of the, of the Word, the grace, the Spirit of the Lord, and He works through people. He works through people. He works through human beings like us. And I want to say as we close this morning that one of the places that would indicate to you and to me as we close this morning that, that we are healthy and where we ought to be as far as the things of the Lord are concerned is if we desire and crave the uh, wonderful provisions, these very special and precious promises that He has given to us, if we crave and desire those, and to return again to the thought of the garden of our heart, that we would, when we refer to those words as we sing that particular song and hymn, we say, that's me, that's me, that's what I experience routinely that's what my life with Christ is. And you can't hide that when that happens. You can't hide that. I think if you would accept a word of, of observation, I think one of our problems and difficulties and challenges is that we permit ourselves to be distracted by too many things. I'll just leave you with that because that's up to you to decide, not to me. Is it possible that I permit myself to be distracted by too many things? Yes. Is it possible that you permit yourself to be distracted by too many things? The answer is yes. Is it also true that we're living in a world and an age that has become that has perfected the art of distraction? Yes. There never has been more noise than there is now. May the Lord bless you, keep you, and uh, lead you according to his purpose for your life.